This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Hey, Scott, this uh, brings us around to the one of our favorite times of the show, and that's, of course, to give a big shout out to our patrons and those people who are helping support us out there on the Patreon site. Yeah, so um, Stephanie is still um, top of the pops, if you like, for uh, for our patrons. And I, I don't know if anybody's familiar with um, triathlon. And there's a thing in triathlon where if you get beaten by um, a, a lady, you get chicked. So um, for all the males out there at the minute, uh, obviously Stephanie is chicking every single one of you now. So people need to get amongst it and uh, and get it out in front of Stephanie. What's that? And, what's uh, that called? Chicked. Chicked. Okay. Chick with a D at the end. That that must be a UK thing. So please explain to me what a chick is. So a, a chick is what you call a a lady, isn't it? Oh, she's, she's the chick. You've been checked. Now I get chick. it. Okay. Yeah. So chick apostrophe D. So it was a thing in triathlon with a lady called Chrissy Wellington, who was a world champion for a while, and she was she was beating all the men, and uh, and then so they they give a title of uh, you've been chicked. And uh, that's what Stephanie's doing at the minute. She's chicken all the lads. All so, right. so people that's, need to get amongst it. And that's Stephanie Lincoln, uh, Fire Team Whiskey. And of course, you had uh, a lot of fun there and first hosing that up in the very beginning when we announced that uh, she was going to. Yeah, I was mightily upset that there was no whiskey involved in it. So <laughs> I just I saw the word whiskey in my mind, just obviously tracked over to, uh, to something more popular than. Um, than the, the the fire team part of it, so yeah. with the with the physical aspect. So. If you, yeah, exactly. If you listened to our last podcast, she had a, a good time picking it back at you, and of course, you were not there because you were sick, so uh, you weren't able yeah. to hear it in person. But it was quite funny. Always always good to have a bit of banter, so uh, maybe I'll get that opportunity with uh, with Stephanie if nobody else gets out in front of us. So. Well, let me tell you how you can do that, too, because you can go out to patreon.com, and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, backslash mentors, the number four M-I-L. You'll see the different tiers that are available out there. And the reason why Stephanie was on the show is, of course, one of the levels and tiers that you can provide as a donor is that uh, you could have the possibility to join us on the show as a uh, podcast co-host. And in this case, Stephanie just happened to have a unique background. We not only brought her on as a co-host, she happened to be the guest and a co-host herself. And it was just the two of us uh, because you end up becoming ill. But even still, she would have uh, ended up filling, fulfilling both of those roles. And those will be unique situations, I'm sure, along the way. Uh, but it was rather cool that she was able to share some of her background. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's a great opportunity for people to get to come and be um, a guest uh, host on the show. And people should really take advantage of that. And as you can tell, the shows, you know, we, we have a, a, a good time and a lot of laughs about it and things. And there's there's obviously a, a good bit of banter between people and guests and uh, and the host. So get involved with it and come and be uh, be part of the show for, uh, for an episode and uh, get in on the right patron level. Yeah, quit being chicked, right? <laughs> absolutely. All right, so for this podcast episode, we're joined by uh, Matt Scollard, who is a former uh, U.S. Air Force PJ. And uh, Matt, it's really good to have you on this show. I followed your account, uh, Special Operator, for some period of time. Actually, I think it was since the beginning of us bringing on Mentors for Military on Instagram. I don't know what it was, that how we connected or whatever it was, but uh, from that point on, I think we followed each other's accounts, and it's good to finally have you on the show. 
Yeah, it's great to finally be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, and uh, we we share kind of a special connection uh, with All Secure Foundation and Jen Satterley, and we'll try to get to that at the end of the show uh, with Tom and Jen and some of the great things that they're doing and, and some of the conversations you've had with them. But I want to get uh, to the beginning here of your military career. First off, where are you originally from? I know you're living out in Washington State at this time frame, or at least over in the West Coast, but is that where you're originally from? No, not at all. It's actually, uh, <clears throat> I was kind of afraid you were going to ask this question. So I, uh, I grew up overseas. My, my dad was a helicopter engineer for Sikorsky, and uh, he had a penchant for taking overseas assignments that only seemed to last 18 to 24 months or 12 to 24 months. So my, uh, I, I left the U.S. I was born in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Naval Hospital. And uh, when I was four and a half, we, uh, we moved to Sigonella, Sicily. And my dad got a got a taste for it, and I spent uh, up until I was seventeen my entire life for the most part overseas. We lived in Sicily and Bahrain and Korea and multiple times in Australia. And uh, what was uh, interesting about it is that I wasn't necessarily like a military brat, but I was surrounded by them because my dad was a, a contractor for Sikorsky. I was around all these military kids who had things like you know base privileges and shop at the B at the PX or whatever. I didn't have that. So I was sort of this like, like in this almost like purgatory state where I was overseas. I was, I was living in the environment. I was American by passport. Uh, but I wasn't really like, I wasn't there because of the military. I didn't have that connection. So I was, I, uh, I moved a lot. You know, I went to 18 schools in 12 years. Oh my Um, God. Yeah. It was, uh, it was pretty interesting. My, we, uh, I, I don't know how that came to be. That's something I'm still trying to sort out with my parents. But like, uh, yeah, I, we, we moved constantly. So, uh, so yeah. So how I ended up here, we'll, we'll get to later. But so you didn't have any of the benefits or anything then that uh, the oh. other military friends and such had none whatsoever. Uh, my mom, my mom likes to brag about how she used to shop on the black market in Korea to get like American food because we were like, ju- she speaks about it like it's some horrific thing to live in like Seoul. <laughs> but uh, we did. We, we we just lived right outside in a little, little town. On the My dad worked at the time for the Korean president, which had its own set of perks, but none of which aligned with my mother, who was, you know, this Italian lady from South Philadelphia, who my dad just thrust into this overseas uh, lifestyle. So that I'm not from anywhere, man. When I uh, when people ask me where I'm from, I'm just like, you know, uh, just a, a child of the earth, I guess. And, I can kind of relate to that somewhat. I mean, I claim Florida only because that was the last station that my father placed us at, but our family was the same way. My dad was, uh, you know, in the Navy and I was a military brat, Navy brat. And, uh, and my kids are the same way. It's hard for them to call someplace home, although Georgia is now where we've lived the longest. This is probably where they would call home, but... But the truth of the matter is, at least the eldest daughter was bounced all over the place like you in different schools, whether it be abroad or here in the U.S. So can totally relate not only as uh, a brat and a military, you know, young kid and everything, but as well as a, uh, a parent of children yeah. who went through the same thing. For sure. So, okay, so you're out there floating all over the place. You're exposed at least to the military and certainly to different branches, I'm assuming, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Army. And during that time frame, I guess it somehow got in your blood that you wanted something to do with the military, I'm taking it. Or was it one of these things that you uh, you were a bit of a bad child and somebody told you you either go in the military or you go to jail? No, nothing like that. Actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm a... Uh... 
you know, I'm a product. Of, I'm a product of the very early '80s, and uh, you know, Top Gun was was there. You know, I, I at some point I was convinced that I wanted to be a fighter pilot because of Top oh, Gun. Of course, then, of course, yeah. And then, and then as, as I got older, Charlie Sheen's you know epic saga, Navy SEALs, came out, and then for a good four year chunk, I was convinced that I was going to be a SEAL. And uh, at the time, my dad was working for. Uh, uh, he had some connections with the SEAL team, so I was exposed to some 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 guys. I'm like, oh, I want to be I want to be this guy. So I think at an early age, I, I had acknowledged that I would at some point probably join the military. Um, I just didn't know when or how. Um, but uh, I I went to high school for the most of my high school years were spent in Australia in Townsville, which is in this like northeast corner of Queensland. It's basically a farm town, and then there's this massive Australian military presence there, and. Uh, you know, I, I was exposed to a lot of those guys. A lot of the SAS boys from Perth would come out there. And oh, yeah. I, I would meet them infrequently. And my dad had a mate who, like, took us out repelling. And I learned how to Aussie repel when I was, like, 16. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Uh, so I, I hadn't really decided that I was going to join the military uh, until until I was a little bit older. But Yeah. So, so yeah. did you even try college? Is that the route that you went right after high school? or Graduating high school in Australia, I wasn't. I didn't have any of the like SATs. I didn't have college prep. I didn't really know where I was going to go. Uh, I didn't. It wasn't really encouraging me. Like, hey, you need to plan for after high school. I was just trying to finish high school as an as like one American kid in this little podunk town of Australia. I was trying to get through it and just survive that experience. Let alone think what was next. Uh, I left Australia shortly after after I graduated high school, um, and I moved to New Jersey to live with my grandmother for a period of time. And then sort of still bounced around, decided, do I want to go to college? Uh, my, around the same time, a few months later, my parents had moved from Australia to Florida. And I, I moved down to Florida to go stay with them, move in with them. And I did. I, I enrolled in a local community college. I started just some boring job. And I was, I was like, there needs to be something else. Like, I, I, I can't do this. Uh, right around the time the movie The Perfect Storm came out. And uh, I remember watching The Perfect Storm, and there's the scene where the guy flies out, and you know the guy jumps out of the helicopter, and he swims over and says his name, and it's so cliche in the movie, and it's so cheesy, but for for me it was it was really profound. And uh, I grew I grew up in the ocean. I was I've always been a surfer, windsurfer, swimmer. The water was like always my my element. So seeing this guy jump out of a helicopter, and to like when all hell was breaking loose. So I was like, yeah, I think, I think that's something that I want to do. Uh, me being naive, thought it was a Coast Guard rescue swimmer. So I went to the Coast Guard and went and talked to the recruiter. And I was like, hey, I think I want to be a rescue swimmer. And uh, he's like, okay, well, that's great. That's like a two-year waiting list. And I, he's like, well, why do you want to be a rescue swimmer? And I told him. And he's like, actually, that was an Air Force PJ. Why don't you go next door and talk to those guys and tell them you want to be a PJ? Wow, very uh, shocking that he actually did that because uh, most of those guys wouldn't have done that. They would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, that was totally us, yeah. Yeah, that was us, yeah. It was going, uh, yeah, sign right here on the dotted yeah. line. <laughs> so this was all This was all pre-September 11th, you know, and the, uh, the military wasn't really – it wasn't. We didn't have quite the, the the national support that we have for the military at the time. I just found this Air Force recruiter in a strip mall in Florida. Said, "I want to do this. When do I leave? Sign me up." Boom. Here I go. So that was, and then it, it was really, you know, all of my life I had been so sort of out of control. I didn't. I, I was out of control with the decisions that were made. These were all made for me by my family. You know, hey, guess what? You, you like it here? Too bad. We're leaving in you know six weeks. Pack your bags. And uh, so this was like, and I was, I was very used to change. I was, you know, 
it, something would change. I would move. I would leave, go to a different school, and just sort of like learn to go with the flow. And that just sort of became who I was. So when I enlisted and signed on the dotted line to join the military, it was like, okay, well, this is just the next chapter in my life. I can't think too much about it, and I just have to take the plunge and go for it. Yeah. And uh, went home and told my parents, who had been trying to get me to join the military for years at this part, you know, uh, probably since I was like 16, I think they were like, oh, you'll just join the military. Like they, that was always their plan B for me. And uh, so, yeah, I, I did it on my own. And then I think I left like probably like, like four weeks after that day. Just like send me as soon as possible. Let me get there. That's really interesting because, you know, typically at least when I was in recruiting duty and, and unfortunately I spent a period of time in recruiting duty and the Air Force tended to have more like what you were describing as the Coast Guard, a one year waiting list. And, you know, for something like what you're talking about there, very specific, I would have imagined that you would have had to wait longer. So the fact that they actually had what you wanted in a short time frame, that would be pretty unique. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, I, I guess, I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of recruiting. I just figured they were trying to get this, you know, the next body through the door and the, the recruiter looking back on it, man, that guy, he fed me so many incredible lies. It was magnificent. <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I'd express like, you know, Hey, at one point I thought about being a SEAL. He's like, well, they, they send you to, you, you go to SEAL school. You go, you go there too. And I'm oh, like, really? Oh. And they started telling me all these other things and looking back, it's like, all right, I, that, that whole period was a blurry and this was almost 20 years ago at this point. And, uh, but uh, it was uh, it was good. I needed that little swift kick in the ass to sort of like redirect my life and kind of take some take some ownership and like decide that, OK, what am I going to do now? Like it, it was it was really quick. Like there was there wasn't like, you know, uh, sitting around pondering what I'm going to do and planning and preparing and like talking to my buddies about it. I was just like this kid who came from Australia and now it's like, yeah, OK, I think I'm going to join the military. And uh, so, so I ship off to I ship off to boot camp, and I'm I'm American by passport at this by passport at this point. I've lived overseas my whole life, and you know we're 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 going over American history. I've never taken American history before. They're singing the national anthem. I I don't know the words to it, so I'm just kind of there, like uh, moving my mouth through the motions, just uh, <laughs> sort of like trying to absorb and like you know genuinely you know into this experience and you know really like believing that what i was doing was the right decision for me and but just could not have been like more of of an outsider now that i look back <laughs> oh my god that is pretty wild when you think about yeah. that you know because i guess i wouldn't have put the two together that you would have been traveling all over the place and not been exposed to you know american history you said very much at the beginning that you didn't go to the same schools or the same benefits and everything else so now it totally makes sense that you would have been like a fish out of water. I mean, completely. Yeah. 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 They're asking, you know, my, my, I was an American by passport. I went to international schools. I could tell you all about like, you know, everything as it relates to world history and you know, different societies and different cultures. And, sure. You know, I was, I was exposed to so many things as a child that I think really shaped my, my opinion of the world as an adult. But in, the, in those like weird little chunks of like early military days, man, I looking back, like I was I was clueless. I didn't know what was going on. I was just like, yep, I'm you're giving me a paycheck. I, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm learning. I, I have a function. I have a job. And, and this is great. This is like my place, at least for the time being. So it was uh, it was good. It was it was it was interesting. But I haven't thought about that in a while, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, what I... year was that, Matt? That would have been uh, January of 2001. Okay. So yeah, so just just before just before the whole world, you know, 
exploded. Yeah. So this was January of 2001 that you finished your boot camp, or was this uh, okay? So that's when that's when that's when I shipped off and left, and then everything after after then, you know, was all all trainings and schools and stuff. So so we get a lot of questions from people about you know PJs and you know the types of training that you guys go through and the whole bit, and it's one of these things that I don't think is talked about a lot out there. Uh, I mean, there's you know there's different photos and there's different information that you can find, but to understand the PJ world um, is a bit of a mystery, I think, in some cases, and I'm not sure why, because the information is available. But give us a little bit of an insight as to the training aspect of that and going to become just the basic PJ before you go off and go to Halo or anything else. Well, so you actually, that, that's all part of the pipeline. So that's, there's the process to become a PJ from start to finish is roughly 18 to 24 months. So the first little, the, the first massive hurdle that everyone has to go through is, is the indoctrination course, or INDOC is what it's called. So that is a, that's a 10-week selection course that, you know, is similar to BUDS or similar to the Q course or any selection-based course where we're taking a ton of applicants and we're distilling it down to a, a core group of a guy that can make it through the rest of the pipeline and then go off into the career field. So let, just to so, stop you there, because I think just to make this yeah. clear for people who are probably more familiar with, like you were saying, people who are going through either the SF contract or a Ranger contract for the Army, you know, in those instances, you are still, like you say, in a pipeline. You're going to go to airborne school following uh, basic or OSIT. You're going to go uh, following that into some kind of indoctrination program, whether that's a, a RIP, RASP type of thing for spe- uh, for. Uh, the Ranger Regiment, or you're going to go into pre-selection and selection for um, special forces. And so what you're describing is just because you have that as the job that you signed up for does not necessarily mean that you're going to actually get that job. You have to go through an indoctrination. So, so that you're absolutely correct. Just because you join the military with, you know, pararescuemen on your paperwork does not mean that you'll become a PJ. You, there is a, a, a tried and true process. And I think the statistic, I'm not sure what it is now, but when I went through, it was something like 90% of people, applicants don't actually make it all the way through to becoming PJs. Mm. So the first hurdle is, uh, is, is the indoctrination course. That's our selection course. That's 10 weeks. That is where most people that are, are not going to become PJs get washed out. And it's just, it's, it's a selection course. It's, it's every day. It's, you know, up before the sun. It's, it's, a, it's just test after test after test after test. And it's, it's, it's everything. Um, you know, the, a typical day is, you know, I get a lot of questions too on social media of like, well, Hey, what's, what, uh, what, what's it, what's a day like, you know, at Indoc? what's, how do I become a PJ? And my answer for people is, is pretty simple. It's, it's like you just need to find comfort in the most extreme discomfort you can find yourself in. Like there needs to be a level of physical fitness. There, leads, there needs to be this mindset of, of never quit. You need to be tenacious. You need to have that like inner fire that's going to see you through. But what it boils down to is you just need to be really comfortable in really stressful and uncomfortable situations. So, uh, so a typical day at Indoc, you know, it's uh, usually like a 3.30 or 4 a.m. wake up. You clean your room, make your, you know, do make sure that your your billet is nice and clean, beds made, that whole thing that kind of carries over from from boot camp. And then it's it's instantly with the team. You know, you're with your 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 team and everything is pushed teamwork because when we get out into the real world and we're we're conducting missions, you don't do anything alone. Or you don't try to do anything alone. It's it's all with the team. 
so you have, you know, you have your run and depending on the day of the week, it could be like a long distance run. It could be sprints. It's work on the track. It could be some terrain cross country work. And then it moves into the pool and the pool is what, uh, really, really separates who is going to be successful and who's not most, most people who quit do so at the pool or who fail do so in the pool. And it's just, it's a process of, of really conditioning these guys, uh, to be comfortable in the water and to like really be able to turn off fear and turn off anxiety and turn off stress. And there's just scenarios that are duplicated and, you know, we, we can't take guys and, you know, stick them in the middle of the ocean in the middle of a hurricane, but we can replicate those same experiences in a pool and it's a controlled environment, but it's, you know, it's designed to test and stress. And it's like, it's, it's up to the individual person who's in the water, who's on the team to like discover something within themselves that they will use to get through the, the iteration, to get through the 10 week program, to take it to dive school, to take that same mentality and apply it to everything else in the pipeline, to apply it later in life when they're an operational PJ. These lessons are so like organic and they're so like deeply rooted and it all starts like, in my opinion, at the pool in Indoc. Yeah. I mean, you think about PJs, you know, you're jumping into potentially 10 foot, 15 foot seas with, um, you know, some pretty fierce winds and trying to go and find the person that's in the water, bring them back to the rope with the rotor wash. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not a fun thing. And if you've ever seen any videos uh, showing that uh, when I say fun, I'm saying it's a challenging thing uh, to handle that situation and keep a calmness about you. Uh, you know, that's, that's what you're describing and, and you're trying yeah. to do that within the best you can within a pool environment. Uh, so they're going to stress you out and make, like you said, the, uh, the uncomfortable, comfortable, because uh, that's what you're supposed to get used to. Absolutely, yeah. You got to find peace and discomfort. Tap into what is your motivation to get through it. Like, okay, hey, how can I consciously slow my heart rate? How can I calm my breath down? How can I care more about my buddy than I do about myself? And then together we'll get through this. We'll survive this iteration. And then it's just day after day after day for for ten weeks of this, and it gets harder every day. It's just like you know, you throw a. You throw a, uh, what, what's, what's the analogy, like a, a frog in a pot of boiling water and they'll jump out. But if you like turn the heat up slowly, you know, it'll stay there. So uh, I think that's been used pretty, pretty frequently to describe the, the level of intensity that the pararescue indoctrination course actually does for, for these people. So once you get out of the indoctrination course and you're one of the 10% or whatever that ends up making it through this, what's the next step? What are these guys so, end up doing? Yeah, so you have this. So it, the whole pipeline, to, so I, like I said, it's about 18 to 24 months to become a fully-fledged PJ. And it's just this constant process of like starting at the bottom, climbing your way to the top, and then getting kicked off the cliff right back to the bottom. So you, you finish in-doc. You graduate in-doc. You're as, as in shape as you're probably ever going to be in your life. You know, you've got the whole world ahead of you. And then it's like now you have proven that you are moldable, you're trainable, that you have this fire in you. And we send you off to all these schools. So the first school the, that you go to is, is typically you go straight to the – or it used to be the Special Forces Combat Dive. Now the, uh, the Air Force has their own uh, combat dive school in, uh, in Panama City, Florida. So it's basically INDOC Part 2, except now you, you have scuba tanks and you're learning skills. So the, the, the combat dive, actually, it's uh, – I, I – was really comfortable in the water, especially, you know, in, 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 para, in, uh, in dock. 
and never really came cl- I had some really stressful experiences and I mouthed off a lot so I'd find myself getting a little extra attention all all for the benefit of making my team laugh. Oh sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I got a little extra attention in the water. Uh, but I, man, I, I was never really challenged like I was until I went to dive school and until I went to the combat dive school, that was probably for me, the, uh, the, the hardest single iteration. I can tell you with absolute uncertainty, the best breath I've ever taken in my life. And, uh, it all, it, it's, it's, it was during a one man confidence at, uh, at, uh, the dive school. So <laughs> one of the guys we've had on the podcast often was uh, Christian Ritter. He goes by C state 21 on Instagram. And a lot of people know him. Oh, recon. Yeah. Yeah. Recon. And he, and he mentioned the same thing that, uh, when it came to the dive portion of this, the dive school was one of the hardest that he went through, uh, mainly because they were so meticulous in, in terms of what you have to do in order to graduate. And if you didn't hit the mark and didn't do things exactly right, you know, you're a no-go. And yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's a challenging school. It's because now, you know, when you go through indoc, it's a lot of muscle memory. It's like, okay, can I run fast enough? Can I do enough push-ups? Can I swim fast enough? Can I get through buddy breathing? You know, can I do all these sorts of things? Nothing is really, you know, there's not the level of, of now we're taking these gross muscle movements and we're applying them to something. And dive school is the first time that you really do that. Now I'm learning how to dive. I have to calculate my dive. I have to learn about decompression tables. I have to learn about dive-related injuries. I have to know how to prep my gear. I have to look after my gear. I have to make sure that my body is secure. I have to – so now we're, we're, we're learning all these things, and it's not just like pick up rock, move heavy thing. Now it's like, okay, where we, we, you've proven at this point that you're physically capable. Are you intelligent enough? Can you think critically? Can you think on independently? How does your brain work when situations are really challenging? And dive school is really the first – the first opportunity to uh, to really test guys on that, and yeah, people people guys who are successful, my dive school class, guys who were honor graduates from Indoc failed dive school on their first attempt, mm. and it's uh, it's I I don't it's Indoc does a fantastic job of preparing you for dive school, but when I went through, man, that was a uh, that was that was a good school. That was it was challenging. So with the rest of the pipeline, quickly, you know, what are some yeah. of the other things that you end up doing within that eighteen to twenty four months? Yeah. So then from dive school, usually you take it off to the airborne school. You know, you, you go up to Fort Benning oh, and yeah. then you, you, you've been running as, as a combat diver at this point, And then you just get sent to the, to the big green machine and you go to airborne. Uh, guys will typically come out of airborne and head straight to free fall school. Um, so there's a couple options for free fall that, you know, you could go to the, to the special forces one at Bragg or the Navy runs a great course out in uh, Chula Vista, California, that you can jump on their free fall portion. And so you'll get your free fall slot. Then uh, you'll go to survival school up in Spokane. You'll do the 17 day course there. And then while you're up there, you'll do the helicopter underwater egress, the dunker. And then, uh, and then, okay, so at this point, you have all of your insertion methods. You've proven that you're, you're, you're strong enough, you're, you're fast enough, you can swim, you're comfortable, you can get to work. Now, what do you do when you get to work, right? So at this point, everybody moves to, to Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And that's when, uh, that's when the medicine starts. You, know, you, you go through EMT basic, uh, and then you go through EMT paramedic. So the, the, the civilian paramedic course is like 18 to 24 months. It's compressed down to roughly about six months for, uh, for, for PJs. So you'll get all your paramedic stuff. Um, you'll go through all the didactics, you know, all the classroom, all the lecture, all the skills. You learn IVs, you learn endotracheal tubes, you learn nasal gastric tubes, you learn 
um, you know, uh, all these really awesome street paramedic skills. Um, but then you dive deeper into the medicine once you get to pararescue school, which I'll, I'll, I'll come back to in just a second. Um, so then once you finish the didactic piece of paramedics, uh, paramedic school, you'll go off and do your clinical rotations. So you'll go right along, you know, the civilian EMS agency or, you know, fire department. Uh, you'll do shifts in a hospital. You'll do labor and delivery. You'll work in an operating room to get intubations. You'll, um, you'll work in an emergency room and you'll go around and you'll practice your patient assessments. So you get a, a lot of exposure to, to, to regular, sterile, to an extent, street medicine uh, in, in the United States. So you'll, you'll be part of an EMS system. You'll ride with a fire truck. So once, and then you'll take national registry, you'll get your card, boom, you're now a paramedic. So now it's like, okay, I, I'm strong enough, I'm fast enough, I can swim, I'm comfortable, I can dive, I can jump, uh, I can survive. I can now do something when I get to work, I can provide medical care, I'm now a paramedic, I can give drugs, I can do cardiac you know, drug administration. And, uh, but how do we take this conglomerate of skills and then package it into this, this thing that we want to create. So that's where pararescue school, they call it the pararescue apprentice course. So in the Air Force, we have skill levels uh, based off your career field. So the lowest you can be is an apprentice. Like at this point, you're a young, you know, lower ranking guy and you're a pararescue apprentice. This six month chunk gives us a, a qualified pararescue man that we can deploy, that we can train, that we can, uh, that we can have on our team. So the, the six-month pararescue school, it's the first, the first month or so is taking all of the skills you learned in pararescue or in, uh, in the paramedic phase, and now we're teaching you like how to operate in a combat environment. You're learning venous cutdowns, field amputations, uh, you know, advanced, we're learning how to administer blood, we're learning how to do buddy transfusions, we're learning how to, you know, do some more advanced and battle medicine. And especially now, I can't imagine what the guys going through now, what they're getting with the advancements over the last 20 years of combat, some of the, you know, the, the, the lessons learned that these guys must be getting. Uh, but when I went through, it was called dirt medicine. And it was like, uh, probably it, it was higher than a paramedic. You know, we could give blood. Uh, we were pushing some, some different drugs. But uh, it, was, it was really incredible because it's like now we're really we're refining what we already know and we're applying it to our setting. After that, you move into the, the mountain phase, which is high angle rope rescue. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's setting up systems because, you know, a, a lot of which I actually have like uh, a high angle, real world high angle confined space mission. Um, but so you're learning like rope rescue. You're learning all these these different techniques. Uh, and then from there, you move on to weapons. Oh, no, excuse me. It's like water. We'll, we'll move into water ops or air ops and water ops. So now we're, we're, we're working more with aircraft. We're actually becoming air crew members on aircraft. So we spend time in the back of helicopters and we're learning how to fast rope and how to climb a rope ladder, how to use a hoist, how to helo cast, how to jump out of a helicopter into the water, how to climb a rope caving ladder, how to signal aircraft, how to be an actual part of that air crew so that when we deploy and we're attached to a helicopter, we, you know, we're actually a part of that crew and we're not just using them for a ride. We spend time in fixed wing aircraft. We'll be up in C-130s, C-17s, C-5, uh, CB-22s. Basically, a PJ needs to be able to step into any airframe, any branch of service, you know, a CH-53, a 47, air, airframes that aren't necessarily unique to the Air Force. We need to step on and be able to walk the walk and be like, hey, here's what we need. How can we use these assets? Uh, we practice calls for fire. Um, 
jumping and then so then we'll move into like jumping out of the helicopter or jumping uh, out of planes into the water so we'll do water jumps we'll do static line water jumps we'll do free fall water jumps we'll do night full combat equipment water jumps and this is just it's a six this this is only a six month chunk that i'm speaking about here and this is just every single day it's just like an instructor is there with a fire hose and he just has it pointed right at your face and you just have to absorb and you have to learn and you have to prove that you're learning these things once uh once air ops and water ops finish, then it's now, okay, we've learned all these things. How can we now defend ourselves? So then we move into the weapons and tactics phase. So then we become familiar with all the firearms and we're on the range for 12, 14 hours a day. You know, everything from pistol to carbine to low light, confined space shooting. And we learn all these, these you know, different shooting positions and techniques and how to, you know, immediate action drills and how to engage in a firefight, how to be part of a team, how to do, we do more calls for fire. Um, and then we move into tactics. You know, uh, when I went through, there wasn't as much emphasis on, you know, I'm sure some of the tactics that we've we sent back over the years from, you know, our, uh, you know, deployments have now been integrated into the schoolhouse. But, you know, the tactics phase, you're you're out you're out on ops for you know for a two week period, and then uh, once that finishes, then the last chunk is is man, you can see the finish line. It's right there. Is is the FTX, and the FTX is like a two week. You're deployed. You know, there's this little. Uh, we have this little village out in the middle of the desert, and we we you move out there. You deploy. You're now. You are now as close to being a PJ as you'll ever be. And it's been two years since you first set foot at Indoc. And you know, you you go there and you're at you're at the FTX and you're you're running missions, man. It's everything. You know, it's uh, you're doing a jump mission. You're doing a water mission. You're doing mass casualties. You're doing base attacks. You're doing. Uh, you, you name it, extrication scenarios, confined space, uh, high angle, low angle. We're just, everything is thrown at you. And then, uh, and then that's it. And then, it, and then it's over. And then you graduate and you're convinced that that is the most incredible day of your life when you put on your maroon beret and you blouse your boots and you recite the code that you've recited 10,000 times before. But now it's, now it's different. Now you're a PJ. And, but so, soon enough, that foot swiftly kicks you right in the chest, man, and you're right back at the bottom. And then you go to your first team, uh, and then you realize, you're like, okay, I've just spent the last two years of my life learning at an incredible rate, and I don't know anything. And you get to the team, and you're like, okay, like, where do we go from here? And then, and then that's it. And that's, that's, the beginning, that's the beginning of the career. Only then are you a PJ. Let me go back a little bit to talk a little bit about the training because I want to differentiate differentiate the training that you get from the basic, you know, in the army, it's a, a 68 whiskey, you know, it's your basic medic. Uh, so what differentiates these different medical backgrounds and is one um, taught differently or, you know, or are you guys learning from the same lesson plan, let's say? So back before Pararescue got our own medical program, we used to attend the JSOMC, the Joint Special Operations Medical right. Course, which is where they sent Ranger Medics. It's where they sent SEAL Corpsmen. It's where they sent Pararescue men. Right. So the, the Air Force decided, hey, we want to keep this in-house. We can take all the lessons learned, all the instructors, and just apply them to our own in-house course. On top of that, we'll give these guys their national registry. We'll make them paramedics. So now you have this, like, it's, you know, it's a recruitment tool to give a guy a parent, to give the guy, you know, an actual a certificate for his efforts. But it, uh, so the other schools didn't do that to my understanding. No, they don't do that. Okay. I, I have, I have buddies who are like ranger medics and they can challenge our seal corpsmen. They can challenge the boards. Um, but they don't actually walk out with that paramedic card like yeah. PJs do. Um, and that's like one of the biggest interest service complaints that I've heard is that the medics through there, 
um, they don't actually come out with with you know a certificate. The big difference, I think, is especially when I went when I went through this is before. The, the, the explosion of like T-Tri-C, the tactical combat casualty care, where everybody's learning how to apply a tourniquet. Everybody's learning how to apply a chest seal. Everybody's learning how to crike. Um, you know, everybody's learning how to do like a bladder tap. These are all skills that were like really reserved for, for the, 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 the practitioner in the field, the ranger medic, the seal corpsman, the 18 Delta, the PJ. And, but we, so we would learn these advanced things. We're given blood. We're given IVs. A lot of the uh, the uh, was it the sixty eight whiskey, the infantry infantry medic. I think you know they're like maybe like an EMT intermediate level. Um, you know we're we you know we've had guys in helicopters in Afghanistan treat full cardiac arrest. You know and they're running the full ACLS algorithm in the back of a helicopter, which is like something that you would do in an ambulance in the U the United States, which up until then hadn't really been expected to be done in, in, in combat. And there was this like this period of maybe 2008, 2008 in Afghanistan when the uh, when the the allied commanders said, "Hey, you know what? We have these guys. I don't know if you know them over there. They're just sitting. They're waiting for like this big mission to happen. But check out these dudes. Here's what they're capable of doing." And so they started putting us on Kazavak mission. So now we're we're now running to these, you know, these casualty. We're we're running Kazavak medevac just like the guys were doing in Vietnam, we're now doing this. And our medical, our medical expertise and our medical abilities just like revolutionized survivability on the battlefield. And it was, uh, it was incredible. And we were, we were taking part in, in studies and we were pushing new drugs and we were like really on the forefront of, 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 uh, of battlefield trauma survivability. And it was incredible. So that was pretty much unique to to the PJs at that point, to us, to being able to be a part of this this uh, you know survivability on the battlefield. But they're different. They're different functions, right? Like a ranger medic is assigned to his battalion. He treats his guys. A SEAL corpsman treats his guys. A uh, an 18 Delta treats his guys, and you know sets up field clinics. PJs like the medical scope is is so much so much broader, you know, that others may live. Like we really don't. I've treated you know enemy combatants before. I've you know multi you know hundreds of kids caught in the crossfire. Like this is like we really don't. We didn't discriminate. We if if that, somebody came under our care, they were our patient, and that's how and that's how it was treated. So without going you know too into detail, there's a, there's a ton of of joint interoperability and PJs. I, I will sure. tell you, PJs are on everything. Right. If there is a high, if there's a high-profile mission, I guarantee you, everyone you can think of, there was a PJ on the team. There's a really, uh, you know, a really awesome video that floats around of the the Jessica Lynch mission, and you know, when she was rescued, the first thing you see is is uh, T Dog walk up to her and hand her his PJ patch, and it's uh, that PJs are uh, they're 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 on all of them, and there's a ton of interoperability, and they're. Any high-profile mission, there was a PJ there. Guarantee it. It's such a good thing to see a military branch give a civilian qualification for something coming out of the back end of it. And in the UK as well, a lot of the courses are similar to the, the other, um, the SEAL corpsman and the ranger medics and things. You do the same training, they just don't sign you off to that civilian ticket. And it's yeah. such a huge thing that the military could do to look after people when they're leaving the military, you know, in that transition phase, to have a civilian ticket for what you you've trained to do is is a huge thing to be leaving with. And 
I don't understand why the military don't do that. So for you guys to, to come away with the paramedic ticket is awesome. You know, I think it's a great point you brought up. I think a lot of it is based off of retention, right? Like, hey, we teach you the skill. You have this job. You can do this job all you want. We just sign sign the dotted line again. And, you know, and I think a lot of that is is for retention purposes. And it's it's unfortunate. I don't necessarily agree with it. And I'm thankful that I did get to walk away from my 12 years of service as, you know, with a paramedic and, and, a, and, a, and a multitude of other things, too. So take us forward uh, after the training, and like you said, you uh, you ended up going into multiple missions and deployments and such. Um, are, are you guys on a rotation that's similar to, say, Ranger Regiment, where it's shorter bursts, but yet you're, it's more intense because of that? You know, it, it just depends on what team you end up. So it, it could be anything. You know, you could be doing four-month deployments every, six, every eight months. You could be on a, uh, you know, a five-month push, but typically... Our deployments, they tried to keep between four and five months because yeah. of the operational, because there's only, there's only at any given time, you know, 350, 400 active duty PJ, or active PJs that they can pull from to go. And we're supporting missions all over the world, you know, at, at any given time, you know, to go to the height of, of our, of our conflicts. You know, we had guys in Afghanistan, multiple teams in Afghanistan, teams in Iraq, teams in the Horn of Africa. We had, you know, training billets. We had you know, local civil billets being filled. And so the, the operations tempo is, you know, is pretty, pretty high. And that's, and that's just a, a fact of life as, as a PJ, you know, you're deployed a lot and, but that's where you do your job. So like, if you have these guys who can go off and provide the utmost good, why not, you know, why would we not employ them and send them with sort of the, the thought process behind that? So is, is your uh, attrition rate pretty high? I mean, are you guys, uh, Attrition or your retention rate as yeah, far as guys well, right. staying in? Well, attrition accounts for, uh, well, yeah, I guess you could call it retention. However you want to look at it, there's different ways that you can slice it because in some cases, some people just have to leave. You know, they're retiring, uh, you know, medical retirement, something like that. But I'm talking about those who, you know, they just burn out. They leave. And it's really common, actually. You yeah. know, I look back, I look back at my, my graduating class of, you know, of PJs and, and very few are, are still on active duty. Very few still remain. A lot of guys, you know, will do, they'll do their four year commitment and they'll get out and go to PA school. Uh, some guys will get out and I have, I think of my, like my peer group, like 10 of them are like doctors and, and PAs. Um, but yeah, our pararescue has been on the chronically critical manned list for as long as I can remember for 20 years now, it's been, it's been like chronically understaffed. We just can't get enough guys. Uh, and it, you know, I guess now it's open to women. So yeah, can't get enough people to, to, to fill the ranks and yeah, there is a high burnout rate. You know, that's, that's to be expected when you're, you know, doing this type of job at the frequency that you're doing it at, that's, it's, it's going to happen to people. Absolutely. Well, you think about, you know, I think it's statistically, I'll say it right here in just a second. Statistically, <laughs> statistically, there's about 5% of the military forces that I believe are in special operations. And of that, you know, probably a good percentage of those are seen direct combat situations. And so war takes a toll on individuals anyway. I, I mean, uh, it's not what you see a lot of times within the movies. It's much harder to portray. And uh, for people who are doing short burst rotations like this when they're back in the rear if you want to call that they're training 
to go back again. It's another Absolutely. mission. Yeah. So you're constantly preparing in a rotational cycle to fight in combat. It's that wear and tear that wears on these individuals over time and their loved ones and their families and those types of things that, um, you know, causes that type of burnout that you're, you're, you know, describing. And I can certainly see that people are not getting out after four years or six years because, hey, look at this great certification that I got and all this, you know, great training. And they're looking at it so much that way. I think it's a combination of that along with just the physical, mental wear and tear that it places on you and everybody around you that over time, if you do survive and go 15, 20 years, I mean, I know somebody that's been in like Ranger Regiment for, I think it's 15 years going on 16 years now. That's shocking, you know, because Absolutely. yeah. And, and when you see somebody that's a PJ that retires at 20, 25 years, you know, that, that's again, that, you almost need a medal for those types of things because it's such a wear and tear. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, you know, if you think about being a PJ, when you're, at work, when you're deployed, you don't, every single mission you go on is somebody's worst day of their life. It is somebody's worst nightmare that has come true. And you are exposed to this day after day after day after day. And then exactly like you said, you go home and you practice to go back to these worst days. And there's just, there's, there's, there's no break. There's no reprieve. You're just constantly in this cycle of, of, of combat, of trauma, and being in that environment. And there very much should be like a, a longevity award that's, that accompanies, you know, an operator's retirement. <laughs> I, can I can certainly see <laughs> that it's uh, difficult to decompress as well. You know, Absolutely. yeah, not, not just after every mission, but even at the transitional phase. So I kind of want to fast forward now into that time period after 12 years. Uh, what was the decision that made you want to go ahead and separate from the Air Force? You know, I had, uh, it, it, it was not an easy decision. It was, you know, I, I, I had sort of realized that my, my state of mind, my state of being was, was not conducive to survival ability. And the last thing I ever wanted to do was to be, you know, uh, to go into that environment with my head not being where it needed to be. And, you know, I, I, I tried lots of, you know, different things personally to try and like shift my mindset of like, like, well, hey, maybe going to JSOC will, will, will maybe going on the offensive side will help. Maybe instead of just being so, um, you know, re responsive to these types of missions was going on, maybe going to the task force will, will, will be beneficial. And it's like I, I, I tried all these different the, the, these, you know, uh, alternative thoughts to like shift my mentality that I could sense I was becoming you know, very disconnected from, from, from the mission, from what we were doing. And, you know, I just, I recognized that, uh, it, it had it, at some point taken the toll on me where I did not feel that I was, uh, I was operationally sound. And, you know, I, I could have, you know, at some point probably taken an instructor position or, or, you know, kind of taken a, a step to the side, but my decision to, to get out ultimately was just like, I had, for lack of a better word, it's just like I had already like moved beyond and I was ready to kind of take on the next chapter of my life. You know, that was, it was 12 years of, of, of service of, you know, really like, like present and, and, and proud service. And I was just, I was ready for the next chapter. And, uh, I was, I, my last, my last duty assignment was, uh, was in Okinawa, Japan. 
and uh, when I when I left, I moved I moved straight to Hawaii <laughs> and had a house right on the beach and you know this little small termite infested shack right on the beach, man. And I just I did that decompression that I had so longed for all those years before. Well, that's an excellent place to do it at as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was, uh, it was it was really it was really Good special. Choice. Yeah. I, uh, we had a we lost a helicopter crew. We lost a, a, a PJ team on June 9th, two thousand ten. Uh, the call sign of the helicopter was Pedro six six, and the team leader, uh, this this PJ Mike Flores, um, actually the, the deployment that he was killed on, right, literally probably six months before that time, we were we were deployed to uh, to southern Afghanistan. And, you know, we, we had to talk, you know, like the, the, the he had kids at the time or he had kids. I had kids. And it was sort of like, uh, hey, if, you know, if, if the unthinkable happens, man, like what do you know, what's what's the next step? So in sort of having that acknowledgement and having that talk, you know, after after he was killed, it was it was pretty devastating. It was, it was like really, really shook me up internally. And he was killed along with Ben White, uh, another PJ, young PJ on our team and uh, the first combat rescue officer killed uh, Joel Gantz. And so when I when I left uh, when I left active duty in Okinawa, I moved to this small town in Hawaii, and I actually lived probably about five houses down from Mike's widow and their two kids. And you know, I took I took them in the ocean every day. I took them out surfing, and I taught them both how to surf, and you know, told them stories of their dad. And it was it was really special. It was like a uh, it was like a healing process for me, and it was also just like really special for me to kind of like keep their dad alive for just you know in 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 through memories that's how, it's the only way he exists now he exists through memories and, right. and stories so to be to be able to do that and to go and like you know spend time with them every day and take them in the water and like share that with them and like talk about what their dad did and like who he was and what kind of guy he was and it was uh it was it was really special and then um there was this big, this big paddleboard race that every year it's between the island of Molokai and the island of Oahu. It's like this 32 mile paddle across the channel, and I uh, I did it in 2013 um, in honor of in honor of uh, Pedro 66. And typically the the it's a downwinder. You paddle from one island to the other, and the wind pushes you at your back. But for some you know un, unknown cosmic reason it had to be the most treacherous year and the winds had actually shifted out of the north. So it was blowing me to, to Fiji versus blowing me to where I wanted to go. So it was, it was really challenging. <laughs> I, uh, I left a lot of, I left a lot of emotion. I left a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of my internal traumas I left in the middle of that channel. So oh, after, yeah, after that experience, it really softened something internally. And, uh, I was like, all right, I'm ready to move on to the next chapter. So, yeah. So, so that was that. Yeah, no doubt. So, I mean, it was uh, an experience right near the end of your military career then that uh, made some of the greatest impact, or was it along the way just kind of the the total of losing some of the friends and some stuff like that? Losing some of the friends, losing people along the way, yeah. you know, and just seeing like what this this line this you know what we're actually a part of. Like, you know, you're not just a, a cool guy, PJ, with you know, a fun maroon beret and you get to dress cool and grow a beard every once in a while. But like, you're actually like the, the real you're, you're at one day, you're supposed to be like, you know, a normal person in society. And then two weeks later, you're, you know, dealing with a kid who's been, you know, stabbed repeatedly, you know, and forced to do something so that a, a, a bad guy can bring him on a helicopter and pretend he's his uncle. It's like, you just can't even fathom like some of the experiences that you find yourself in. And, 
you know, some guys, some guys, I, I truly believe this, are just truly like like meant to be in that environment. There are some fantastic operators, you know, especially like you know the, the assault force guys. These, a lot of these people are just like they, it's almost like they're they are bred for that environment. But I, I think the reality is is that war and combat truly affects more, way more people than ever speak about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it it goes against like everything that you are taught from an infant to later in life of like we don't do these things and then. Oh, but get, well, it's okay to do them in this scenario, and it's okay to do them over and over and over and over and over again. And it's just, you know, as, as guys get older and they have families of their own, and maybe their perception of the world starts to shift, and you start to wonder, like, how many more risks am I going to take? How many more bullets am I going to dodge? And it just catches up with you. Yeah. And uh, and yeah. So you know, for me, it wasn't any it wasn't any one defining moment. It was just a succession of things that kept happening, and it was like when it was time to move, when it was time to move on, it was time to move on, and. The fact that you came to that conclusion as late, I would say, as you did, because the fact that, you know, you were you were a different breed going in. Having known more about the world out there, known about some of the uh, the ways in which other countries deal with different situations, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, you, you knew a lot more. So when you came to this situation, um, it wasn't like you were taking it lightly. I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is you, you took all of that in, whereas the average person may not have that type of breadth of knowledge, and they're only going by their their own experiences. But uh, coupling that with it, it may have even made it worse. I would think. Uh, you know, it did, and it, it yeah. took me a long, it took me a long time to realize that. You know, it's like why why is this challenging for me when it's not challenging for my buddy next to me? And it's exactly that. And then. You know, I didn't realize that until uh, until after I'd gotten out. But when I did, it was pretty profound. It was like, you know what? That actually did make this infinitely harder than it needed to be. Yeah, at first I thought that it wouldn't. But now that I'm thinking of it, yeah, it actually probably would have made it harder. <laughs> so uh, so take me into the world of uh, the transition. And after you got out, I mean, what did you end up doing? Did you end up going the paramedic route or what did you end up doing? You know, no, I didn't, man. I uh, My first, my very first gig outside of of the, so I, I took that nice you know ten month decompression in Hawaii, which I'm really thankful for. And then when I was ready to get back into into uh, into the workforce, I, I found myself in this really interesting little niche of uh, it's this world called executive protection, and it's uh, it's where you know you have all these high profile individuals, and they have these security teams that are attached to them, and they look for guys that have previous military experience. They look for guys that have former special forces or special operations experience. They love medics. They didn't even realize at the time how much they loved PJs, uh, but they also looked for something. They also were <laughs> until they met you, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, they also were looking for uh, some additional skills too. You know, like you have to, yeah, you have to. You can't just be like you know this big mean knuckle dragger. You know, uh, sure. My 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 very first like really like special gig is uh, I ended up on this on this uh, island and I was providing pr- like private medical coverage and I was also kiteboarding and surfing and windsurfing and freediving and tough doing job, all these yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it was it was it was pretty pretty incredible, and actually, I found myself doing that for for a number of years in various capacities, getting to travel the world and provide medical coverage while also getting to surf some amazing spots around the world and to kite and uh, to really tap into for me what is my greatest greatest you know relationship, which is with with nature and the ocean and uh, you know being in, in in harmony with the sea, and it's 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 always it's sort of like just like returning back to where it all began with yeah. becoming. DJ, just with a different, a broader lens and, and more life experience to really appreciate where I am and what I'm doing. What did you find to be your passion then through all this experience? You know, I, I just, just 
being a PJ taught me that I can have a thousand passions and, and I, and I still do. And what ultimately kind of taps into like that special place within me is working with, uh, with, with veterans and it's, uh, it's, it's teaching and practicing yoga and mindfulness practices and, and sharing this, like this, this path of like, growing from the experiences of being in the military and, and how they can shape the future. And it's, it's through yoga. It's through teaching yoga. It's through practicing yoga. It's through breathing and conscious breathing and breath work. It's through being in the ocean. It's through receiving massage and, you know, basically like, um, taking that, that self care, that almost that like selfish self care that is absent from military service. You know, when, when guys, and women join join the military. It's you know the, the whole concept of service. You you know we give, and that's mm-hmm. what's we're never we're never really taught that it's okay to be selfish. It's okay to take what you need. It's okay to like take time for yourself. It's okay to receive like positive like healing practices. And a big part of my uh, my 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 current work and and my future work is is deeply rooted in that in that belief in that cause. In looking at that, I noticed that, you know, on Instagram and your social media, you spend a lot of time on yoga, but also providing some of your life lessons. And I love some of the messages that you put out there. And for a period of time, you did a series, as a matter of fact, that we shared on Mentorship Military uh, and one of our other accounts. Um, and it was really about um, you giving back that selfless service or that service back that you're describing and yoga, as you mentioned, is one of those ways in which you do that. What was it that got you into yoga? And was that something that you did early on in life or was that something you learned after transition? You know, and in, in looking back when I was 17 and living in Australia, I, uh, for, for some reason, I don't, I don't know what it was. I, I, I got a book from the library on, on yoga and it was ridiculous. You know, there was a guy like threading a cheesecloth through his, through his nair and like flossing. It was, it was, what? It, it was, it was absurd, you know, and a lot of, it, I was like, I, I read the book and I, and I kind of discarded it and like, was like, okay, like yoga is, you know, yoga is like stretching or whatever. It didn't really give it any thought. Fast forward like 10 years beyond that. And I'm, you know, I'm an operator. I'm, I'm, you know, like this big tough guy and, you know, lifting weights and I'm, you know, there's like the biggest guy on the team and like, was like, hey, I, there, there's, there, I, for some reason, I, I was compelled to like to take a yoga class, and I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I think I was just can't, I, I can't remember. You know, there's, there's like no like light bulb moment that was like, hey, go take this yoga class. But mm-hmm. I, I did. I went and took a a, a hot yoga class, and I, I it, it sucked. I hated every minute of. It. I sweat my ass off, and like I was, I couldn't do it, and I was miserable, and my ego kicked my ass. I was like, that's stupid. I'm not going to go back and do that again. Scott smiling. But, I, I think he was thinking of something else when you mentioned hot yoga. <laughs> I know what hot yoga is. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, you know, at, so then. A couple, a couple like months, maybe a year or so after that, I was, uh, I, I used to spend a, a, as much of my own time as I could in the ocean. You know, I would, I would go out and surf or I would, you know, I grew up windsurfing and like, I, I later got into kiteboarding and I, uh, I would go off and that was like, that was my, my religion. That was my meditation. You know, it, it's the most like spiritual activity for me, the whole process of it. And I was, you know, I was like, Hey, maybe, you know, I, I should be working more on like, on some like flexibility. I should be working more on, 
on like doing things differently and like how can I I'm getting a little bit older you know I was like maybe just turning you know like like 26 or something <laughs> thought, <laughs> that's really but, old yeah thought, thought of old, old, by, <laughs> old by those standards and uh and so like I I I sought out yoga. Like, I don't know what it was. I just, I started to seek it out. And I, I was like, you know, YouTube wasn't really a thing. So I would go and like, I would like rent DVDs from the library and I started to do it on my own. And uh, I really liked it. I, I, I liked it a lot. I liked the way it made me felt, the way it made me feel. I liked the way that like I could like move my body and I, I sucked at it. Like I, 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 from what I thought from the way I was like following along with these videos, like they were horrible. So then I was like, oh, okay, you know, I, 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 I'm going to go take some classes. I'm going to go into the, into these yoga studios. So I, I found a yoga studio and I went into it and I could, you want to talk about a life changing experience. I walked in and I was like, you know, I had on my little, like, you know, short shorts, my little silky running shorts and went in to go take this yoga class. And I could not have been more uncomfortable and felt like more, more judged and more like, just like, I did not belong there. You were and the only dude, right? Not only was I the only dude, but I was in there with all these uh, with all these women who were talking about like, you know, when life gets hard, all this like, oh, we just got to breathe through it. And I'm like, first Listen. world problems. Yeah, I'm like, it's like, OK, like so <laughs> first world problems, but like amplified that they can all be fixed in this room by these ladies, like really projecting their their like if I can just send all the love to them. And I'm like, OK, well, six weeks ago, I didn't feel your love when I was like, you know, knee deep in this guy's <laughs> intestines. But I knew I was really salty at the time. I knew I was angry and pissed off. And like, I didn't want to I, I, I kept my thoughts to myself. But I was like, man, I don't like that. Like that that does not resonate with me at all. That's that's so fake. It's like but I. I, I really enjoyed doing it on my own and I really enjoyed like watching these DVDs and like following along and like, and like exploring and playing a little bit more. And then, uh, time after time, and I would, I would work up the courage to go take a yoga class and I would be, it would be met with the same thing, different city, different town, different country met with the same product every time. And I was like, well, maybe the problem's me. Like maybe I'm the one who's going in with this like state of mind and like I'm expecting something and I'm too much like, like, you know, you guys weren't there. You don't know what it's like. You don't, you think you know what problems are. You don't know what problems are. And so I, I, I sort of took a step back and decided like, hey, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'm not going to go practice anymore with people, but I'm, I'm going to do this on my own. And then uh, I, just, I, just kept, I just kept at it, you know, and I, and I kept at it and kept at it. And I decided one day, I was like, you know what? I like this. And, and there's, some, there's some really, there's a lot of good that comes out of this. I like the way I feel when I breathe and like I'm getting more flexible and like I have more control over my body. And like, you know, I, I used to be able to bang out all the weights on reps and I could do all the weight you wanted. But it's like, I didn't really have that, like understand that deep knowledge of my body. I didn't realize how I was storing memory and trauma and information in my body until I took the time to like deepen this yoga practice. And then when I was ready, I was like, you know what, I'm going to become a teacher because I, there's, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only guy or, or woman who's going to walk into one of these yoga studios and be and, and feel rejected, feel judged. And I don't, I want everybody to receive this, this, this benefit, this practice that I found something of, you know, what you guys were talking about in that room, I found on my own. I found through hundreds of hours of like reflection and movement and sweating and I decided, you know what, I want to share this practice with, with others. And I want to, I want to like do the dirty work and like push all that fake stuff aside so that like I can offer the distilled product of, of, of what I think 
what I believe yoga truly is. And that's where the whole special operator idea came up, you know, a little play on words, you know, just chanting Om, and it was like, you know, the former special operator. And I was like, man, the, uh, the lessons, they're, they're profound. You know, you go to the gym and you do like a good chest workout. You're like, yeah, my chest feels good. But do you like take away anything from it where you're like, well, hey, you know, I, I feel more connected to, to the earth or to my, myself because of this. And that's what, that's what I'd like to do with, like, with yoga is apply the lessons that I can learn while I'm practicing or teaching yoga to something that's happened for me. And that was a big part of that series of like, you know, um, comparing like specific missions that I was on as a PJ with like the lessons that I can apply to a yoga practice and then to ultimately a life practice. How can I be a better person? How can I be, you know, a better, a better father, a better partner, a better friend, a better son, a better brother. And it's just this constant self assessment of like, never accepting that where I am is like where I'm always going to be, but how can I continue to, to, to improve and how can I only, as far as I know, I only get to live one time. How can I make it like the best and, and how can I be the best version of myself? And for me, it's, uh, it's through practicing, teaching, sharing, uh, and being involved with, with the practice of yoga. And you know, a lot of, uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, organizations and stuff, or those that are helping with post-traumatic stress are beginning to use yoga because of the breathing and because of the calmness and everything. What have you found to be the reasons why it, it may help from the traumatic aspect of it? Uh, and maybe even in yourself or in some of the people that you've helped through and everything, why is that so important and how does it help? You know, we spend, especially, uh, like, the the mental health care model as it stands and as it has has stood for some time it's it's very much a band-aid it's like hey you have a hard time sleeping here's some ambien here's some restoral hey you have anxiety here's some ativan here's you know here's another benzodiazepine oh hey you have this here's this medication and it's like we're just putting band-aid on band-aid on band-aid and we haven't really taught these men and women that it's okay to feel how you feel there's never like hey you know what it affected you when you saw that kid who was like blown up by, by an IED. That's okay. It's okay that that affected you. And you need, you actually need to take the time to feel these emotions. Because if you don't, the body's going to force them on you anyway. It's going to come up in, in nightmares. It's going to come up in social anxiety. It's going to come up in anger. It's going to, you're going to take this experience that are these experiences out on your loved ones. You're not going to, it's and and you can't control it. You really cannot. I I believe that tra the traumatic stress, and you know and you know combat anxiety. These are things that are out of these people's control. They it's just whatever life's experiences and your perception of the world. It, it's unique and independent for every single person. War affects everybody differently. Right. But there are some co there are some commonalities with how the after effects of war affect people. You know PTSD. That's why there is like. A structured list of symptoms and we have this diagnosis that we can use but the diagnosis you don't become the diagnosis and it's it's how can we move beyond that so what I found through yoga is when you're in these difficult positions or you're like moving and breathing like you have the time and space to allow these emotions to come up and they will come up and it becomes this practice and it's it, it can start out really subtle you can just be like in a, in a back bend and it sucks and you're, and you're hurting and you can't get quite what you want to, but you just found out that you are in the most vulnerable position because for the years before that you wore body armor, you protected your chest, you had this hard plate here and you were always taught that you, you protect your vital organs here. And now you're doing the exact opposite. You're laying on your back or you're up in a back bend and all this is presented to the world out in front of you. 
And with that comes a whole gamut of, of, emotional, of uh, emotional response, you know, anxiety, fear, anger. But when we do it enough and when we practice it enough in this controlled and safe environment, it softens. It's just like any other form of, 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 of therapy. You know, when you go through prolonged exposure and, you know, you talk about a scenario and you just keep talking about it and over time it softens, it softens, it softens. It's just another, another modality to tap into these experiences that have happened to you or that have happened with you or of you. And it just gives you an opportunity to work on them. And it's a practice, right? It's not like you go to one yoga class and you walk out and you're like, yep, well, never, I'm good to go. It's, it's, it's a life practice and there's some incredible benefit. And no, and then the movement, you know, you release endorphins and you, you stretch and you become flexible and like your body feels better and you're breathing consciously and you're breathing deeply. Most, I can't, you know, I can tell you for the time that I was a PJ, I can name one breath that, that mattered something to me. And that was when I was, you know, at dive school, I don't ever remember sitting on a helicopter about to go into a mission, taking deep breaths. I can't remember consciously breathing. My brain was doing all these other things. And it's like, imagine if, if I had the tools back then to be like, no, I'm, maybe I did, you know, maybe I, I guess I did by going through Indoc, you know, I, I did learn how to calm and control myself, but and being able to like take that selfish time was something that was, became so profound with my yoga practice. That was my time. Like that was my movement. That was me just, that was me like softening this external armor that I carried on me for so many years. And no, not just combat through my entire life's experiences, but you know, and it's, it's just, it's a practice and it's something that I I do every single day in, in different ways and something, you know, it, it looks different every day. Like one day it could just be the most playful, you know, fun experience of like getting sweaty and getting like a good deep breath. And the next day something could come up that it's like, oh my God, I, I totally forgot about that. I'm going to take this five minutes and I'm actually going to feel sad that I had to, that I was a part of that experience. And I started sleeping better. Um, I started having less social anxiety. I started engaging with others more alive and more open. I started speaking more confidently. And it's just over time, like things just softened. And that's really what it comes down to is it's just like all of these, these rough edges and this abrasiveness that I carried with me for so long, it just, it just softened. And it's, uh, it's, it's profound. And I love sharing it with people. I love, you know, I love sharing just the physical practice of it to making, you know, especially men and operators and we're all like so inflexible. I love sharing this practice to improve their quality of life. You know, I, I sort of had this, uh, this, this tangent where it was like my motto as a PJ was that others may live. And my concept of life now expands more than just having a pulse and, and vital signs. Like I want to improve quality of life so that others may live is still my mantra. It's still like my guiding ethos, but it's like, how can I improve quality of life? How can I take all the experiences that I had as a PJ and how can I, like package them in a way that may resonate with somebody to like help them to find their own path towards healing, towards, towards growth and to ultimately being like the best versions of themselves that they can be. Yeah. All the things you just talked about are some of the things that people could use both while they're on active duty currently right now. Don't wait to the transition, but also if you've had some type of traumatic experience or something that you're trying to get through, as you've presented, yoga is definitely an opportunity. And it's one of the reasons I think that All Secure Foundation has also talked with you about ways to make that kind of improvement. But before, you know, 
we jump ahead too far of ourselves, you have a program that you're describing that you offer online. So I want to at least throw that out there and let other people know about it because you do offer a program by which anybody anywhere can be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. It's just uh, go onto the website, specialomperator.com, and then you know send me a direct message. And my first, I, I, or on Instagram, I, I love to just sort of like chat with people and, and get an idea of like what they're after, you know, if I if I am a fit for them. I'm definitely, I have no no heartache whatsoever in sending, if, I'm, if something is out of my comfort zone or I don't think that we're going to be, you know, compatible with my practices and your goals, then I have no problem sending somebody on. But for the people that do resonate and, you know, we do get into practicing breath work, uh, you know, technology has made, you know, we're sitting here right now having a conversation uh, in three different corners of the world. And that uh, it, it is an option. I, I love to talk to men and women and, and especially veterans as it relates to that. So, you know, if anybody has any questions, they please go to the website, shoot me an email and uh, we'll take it from there for sure. I think it's such a great thing for you to take into the military community as well as the male community, um, Matt. It's, you know, there's so many benefits just listening to you talking about it. There's so many benefits for it. And, and I, I think it's a huge thing for, for men to, that's, that's why I was smiling earlier when you said about going to your first class. And I, I remember we did a, an aerobics class once when I was in the military. <laughs> I was based in the Falklands and um, for some reason, our normal PT session didn't turn up and there was um, a wives aerobics class. I remember up. that. I had one of those as well. And I, <laughs> yeah. I remember, and at first we were all negative, but by the end of it, we were like, holy crap. What it did we just, just go kick, through? Kick my ass. Yeah. And like you said about uh, with you, Matt, as well, it just completely kicked my ass. And we, there was about five of us. We, we was on um, a detachment. There was about five of us. And there was this group of, wives you know in all different shapes and forms and oh, all right here we go we got the 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 soldiers are going to come and join us for an aerobics club the, you know we'll we'll try and make it um as hard as we can for you guys because you're all fit lads and genuinely within about five minutes we were all hanging out of our ass <laughs> I was like, what's, wrong, what's wrong with you but it, it's it's to do something different out of your comfort zone and yeah. out of your perceived you know, what men should do and what women should do and all that bullshit that goes with that because it's just completely wrong. And who made those perceptions, though? Like, who put those labels on there? Yeah. You know, and I I think just people should try something. If you want to try something, and I'm so glad you said about I went to the class and I just didn't fit in and I wanted people to be able to access this. So I I started, you know, courses without the bullshit part and the fakeness of it. And there's a lot of things, I guess, put men off going and doing those things. And I, you know, I'd never dream of going and doing a yoga class because I know I turn up with all these women and they'd be like, what? who's this guy with a big beard turning up? And, <laughs> and but it's, it's so refreshing to hear somebody saying about I wanted to get rid of all that. So nobody else was doing it. So I did it myself. That's exactly. Awesome. That's where it came from. Thank you very much for that feedback. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's no, really good. And uh, I think a lot of other people need to jump on board and learn a little bit more about it. And I know myself with some of the injuries post-military that I have had, 
um, Pilates, yoga, those are the types of things that they mentioned a lot about helping build the core, uh, which I seem to, to not focus as much on. I mean, you spend more time on, like you said, chest and arms and, you know, a little bit on leg day, a little bit of cardio, <laughs> you know, those types of things. And you don't focus on the things that are most important, like you're talking about, like nutrition, sleep, uh, you know, breathing techniques and the back muscles and stomach and the things that, you know, help keep your posture straight. I have terrible posture. Uh, you know, I, I've been told that I have more shallow breathing. I don't have the deep breaths. And so these things that you're describing helps bring, like you said, greater opportunities for, um, you know, uh, inflammation, uh, you know, stress, uh, anxiety, whatever the case may be, they start manifesting themselves in different ways. Definitely. Absolutely. And they all, they all will find a way out ultimately, you know, as we, the body, has a way of reminding us that we're not doing what we should be doing or that we're and getting it, old. Yeah. Or that we're getting old, but that's the beauty of yoga is that, you know, it, it is something that we can practice throughout our life. You know, being able to control and move your body is something that I don't think you can out, you can outgrow. It just, you know, it may, it may look differently as you, as we get older, but it's something that we can constantly come back to, to, you know, to work on, quality of life, improving our posture, breathing deeper, sleeping better, eating better, having better sex, you know, all these things are, are like tied to the, the practice of, of yoga. And it's, uh, it's, I, I love to share it in it's like raw form and it's like refined state that I, you know, what, what works for me. And, um, it's, it's great. And I love that you guys are supportive and on board and, you know, sharing the message. And that's, you know, the more we can get, men and, and military veterans and special operators sort of, you know, tapping into this, to this practice, I think we'll all ultimately be better because of it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you doing what you're doing, decided to take it out of its shelf in the way that it was formally presented and presented in a new light, like you were describing here. Uh, and I, I know that you have some conversations or have already had some conversations with the foundation, like we had mentioned and hope for good things to come of that. Uh, but what's some of the ways that before we get off of here of how people can find you on social media we mentioned already special operator uh as it is on um instagram and your website by the same name are you on that on other social media or is that the best way to find information yeah that's that's the best way instagram okay. is probably most direct social media if anybody's in the uh the portland oregon vancouver washington area i teach uh, i teach classes every once in a while but message me directly and uh, and we'll meet up for sure but those are the best ways to reach me for sure matt appreciate you coming on buddy it was good Man, talking I to you it was my absolute pleasure. Nice to chat with you both, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Mm -hmm.